Well, hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up, a report from the recent United Methodist Special General Conference from Lester Spencer of Montgomery, Alabama, St. James United Methodist Church and regional president of a chapter of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. At the meeting, delegates voted to uphold biblical views of homosexuality. Then from Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, Kyle Eidelman discusses the importance of Christians continuing to exercise faith in the Lord, developing and applying courage and confidence. Plus, professional baseball season is about to begin, and sports writer Dell Didway has put together a book of stories of major leaguers who live out their Christian faith. You'll be hearing some of his comments. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, the spring season of 40 Days for Life has begun, and the founder of this prayer and proclamation movement on behalf of the unborn, Sean Carney, shared about one particular Planned Parenthood director and how he and his wife ministered to her before and after she chose to leave the abortion industry. Finally, oral arguments occurred in front of the U.S. Supreme Court recently in a case involving a large veterans memorial in Maryland in the shape of a cross. Roger Byron of First Liberty has been an attorney in the case for a number of years and provided some insight regarding the case, the judge's response, and implications for how religious liberty cases may be decided in the future. You'll be hearing from that conversation coming up. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Lester Spencer is senior pastor of Montgomery, Alabama's St. James United Methodist Church and president of the Alabama West Florida Conference chapter of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. He reported from St. Louis on the recently concluded Special General Conference of the United Methodist Church. At that conference, delegates approved the traditional plan, which retained the denomination's language on homosexuality and marriage. From that report, here is Lester Spencer. Every four years, um, the Methodist Church has a gathering of delegates from around the world. It's called the General Conference for those that didn't grow up Methodist. And um, in 2016 at the General Conference, this issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage and the sanctity of marriage um, was a, uh, came to the forefront once again, as it has for decades now at General Conference. And so the bishops um, made a recommendation that they form a commission on a way forward that would study this in detail, just this one issue, the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality and the ordination of homosexuals, etc. And so they called a special general conference that to be held in 2019, which just uh, ended yesterday. Um, so for the last four days, this special call general conference has met in St. Louis just for this one issue to hear a report from the commission on a way forward about their recommendations. And basically multiple plans came out of that report. Uh, one was the, what was called the one church plan, uh, which was supported by a lot of people, especially in the United States. Um, and it basically, uh, redefined marriage, uh, is not just between one man and one woman, but between one, uh, uh, adult and another. Um, it also opened up the doors for um, ordination of um, homosexuals and full inclusion. The uh, the 
There were other plans that were on the table uh, as well. There was a plan called the Simple Plan, just, just removed all language about sexuality from the Book of Discipline. There was another plan called the Connectional Conference Plan. Uh, all of those plans were failed to get enough votes to be the final one that was voted on. Um, but the traditional plan basically supported our current stance in the Book of Discipline, which many of us believe is uh, the scriptural plan. Uh, it, we, it also affirmed the uh, priority of uh, Scripture, uh, the, the authority of Scripture. It affirmed our belief in the sanctity of marriage, um, that marriage is between one man and one woman. It also uh, supported our current biblical stance uh, in the Book of Discipline that doesn't allow us to do same-sex marriages or to recognize them or to perform them or to allow them in our churches. So basically, the uh, traditional plan passed at really at the last minute yesterday. It had strong support throughout the conference, but the final vote was taken late yesterday afternoon, and it passed. There were some amendments that we tried to get uh, taken care of concerning the traditional plan because the judicial council of the Methodist Church had ruled that parts of the traditional plan were not constitutional according to the United Methodist Constitution. So um, we had to make some changes on amendments. So we didn't get all those amendments in. So even if parts of the traditional plan may be ruled unconstitutional, the vast majority of it is, we believe is going to stand. Um, and, and so also there was a path, um, what we call a gracious exit path that was also approved for those churches that can't um, in good conscience stay a part of the United Methodist Church. There was another uh, plan that was called a, a gracious exit plan or a disillusion plan that allows people allows churches to exit under certain strict conditions. So that's basically where the conference ended up um, in, in their final decisions. Lester Spencer here on The Intersection. To learn more about the Wesleyan Covenant Association, you can go to wesleyancovenant.org. Next up, it's Kyle Eidelman, teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. In our recent conversation, he shared material relative to his book, Don't Give Up, Faith That Gives You the Confidence to Keep Believing and the Courage to Keep Going. Here now is Kyle Eidelman. There's any number of lies I think you could could choose. I've just found that more often than not, when someone is ready to give up, it's because uh, there's something they're telling themselves on a pretty regular basis. They're believing it. It's kind of the story that they're repeating in their heads. That's the script that they're reading from. And until they flip that script, it's pretty hard to persevere. And so one of the lies is you don't have what it takes. And, um, you know, they, they buy into this lie that, that they don't have the strength. Now, there's some truth in that that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves, but we do know who has what it takes. And so it's, it's learning to replace the lie of you don't have what it takes with I know who has what it takes and, and putting my confidence in Jesus that, um, you know, with him, I have the strength for 
to do everything he's called me to do, everything I need to do. Um, and another lie would be you can fix it yourself. And this was a, a significant one for me in, in my life where I would, um, I, I would become tired and weary because I was just not asking for help, that there were people around me who were willing to help, uh, but I didn't let them know there was a need for it. I was determined to do it on my own. Um, even in my prayers, I recognized in hindsight that I, I didn't often uh, just get on my knees and say, God, help me. I don't know what to do. And so when I tell myself, hey, I got this, I can fix it, I'm, I'm setting myself up to um, to fail and, and to grow weary. And I'm putting all my effort, all the effort in on my own. And so humbling myself and asking for help from God and others. And then a, a third lie is just that you deserve to be happy. You know, if, if you kind of live your life by that mantra, um, then you'll give up because there's a lot of times perseverance doesn't seem like the thing that will make us happy. It, it, you know, you can give up on a marriage pretty quickly if, if you just are trying to do what's going to make you happy in that moment. And, um, and so instead of, of telling ourselves and living by this mantra of you deserve to be happy, uh, you know, living out of a desire for, for God's will and, and seeking God's will. But when we can flip the script and we can replace some of those lies with truth, it can change the trajectory. It can give us uh, perseverance. If we want to persevere, we have to recognize what's holding us back. If we want to move forward, we need to understand that there's some things that are holding us down. And, um, and, and so in the book, one of the things I, I try to do is just underline some common weights that I've seen that keep people from persevering. So one of the things I talk about is anxiety, that anxiety, it, it's like um, it, it's hard to breathe. It, it makes it difficult to keep running the race when, when you feel uh, overwhelmed, when you feel anxious. And so learning to cast our anxiety, as First Peter says, on God, because he cares for us is a big deal when it comes to finishing the race, that we're not going to be weighed down by that. Uh, practically speaking, one of the ways I, I try to help people with this and, and one of the ways I try to practice this in my own faith is there can be a tendency in prayer to just spend my time telling God about my anxieties, but understanding that there needs to be a shift where I start telling my anxieties about God. And David does this hmm. in the Psalms really well, where he, he begins by just saying, God, here's my trouble, here's my anxiety. But then there's a shift, and he begins to tell his anxieties about about God. Sometimes you you pray and you feel more anxious and overwhelmed after you've done you're done praying because all you've done is is talk to God about your trouble instead of talking to your trouble about God. And so learning to cast our anxiety on him, another weight I talk about is the the weight of religion uh, that it, it we look to religion to help us when we're tired and when we're hurting, but in reality, uh, religion where we're trying to please God by following rules and keeping regulations, and we're making it all about earning his favor, that's just a heavy weight. And, and Jesus uh, in the Gospels was very hard on religious leaders because he said of them that you are constantly putting weight on people and you're not doing anything to help them carry it. And, and there is um, there's a freedom from religion. We read about this in Galatians uh, that allows us to, to run free. Um, and so identify some of the, the weight, some of what's holding you back, um, allows you to move forward more freely. And I, I just see oftentimes people with the desire to, 
to endure and a desire to persevere, but unless they release some of the weight that they're holding on to, it, it's going to be pretty difficult. Kyle Eidelman here on The Intersection. His website address is kyleidelman.com. Well, the founder of 40 Days for Life, a pro-life prayer-centered effort that occurs at abortion clinics across America, Sean Carney, visited with me recently to talk about how he and his wife reached out to a former Planned Parenthood clinic director, Abby Johnson, before and after she left the abortion industry. Her story is portrayed in the upcoming movie Unplanned in theaters on March 29th. From that conversation, this is Sean Carney. Yeah, well, I mean, having lived through this, you know, Abby Johnson's abortion facility, um, that building now serves as the headquarters for 40 Days for Life because that was the location of the first ever 40 Days for Life campaign. The peaceful vigil uh, model took place outside of her campaign for the first time. Now it's in, you know, 816 cities, but it's a very special location for us. At the time, my office was located just next door. Uh, to that building, and she had her conversion and walked right over. You know, I I knew her for eight years when she worked at Planned Parenthood. And so the movie uh, takes all of that, takes her beautiful story and and her conversion story and all that God did uh, in in her heart, in her family, and and gave her the courage to leave and, and sort of a drama that unfolded after that. What was the turning point for Abby was witnessing a ultrasound guided abortion. And, and they show that in the movie. And, you know, I've been working with these guys, uh, I don't know, the last five years on, on the movie. And they have been through uh, Abby's former workplace, our, our office. They went through the building um, many times. And, you know, what I wrote in my town hall article is that, I was glad that the movie was rated R and and there were, we talked about a possible R rating for a while with, with Chuck and Carrie who, who made God's not dead and now made unplanned. And in a lot of ways, this is the definitive movie on abortion by far. Uh, I can't wait for people to see it. It is the definitive movie on abortion. And I think being so it's appropriate that, that it's rated R because abortion is rated R and Planned Parenthood is rated R. And you see, along with Abby in the movie, uh, an abortion. You you witness it. They were able to recreate actually two separate abortions. And the MPAA, which loves abortion and could care less about, you know, the violence, they, they used that violent scene as a way to uh, label the movie as violent and, and, uh, and give it an R rating. Well, Sean, let's talk about now that moment of change, of transformation, where Abby's mind was, as you might say, enlightened by the Holy Spirit with respect to the horror of what she was involved in. Well, you know, she she was asked to assist with an ultrasound-guided abortion where you can see the, the entire abortion take place. She was holding the probe. She saw this 13-week-old baby boy fight for his life in front of her eyes and and lose that fight. And that, for her, registered that the baby was alive. She had seen many dead babies, and for some reason that didn't strike her heart, or she didn't run out of the building, as most people would. But it was when she saw the the live baby fighting for his life that she knew, uh, and they have it in the movie, he's trying to get away from the catheter. You know, she says that. And, uh, you know, that's that's what happens 
uh, is when you see a live baby aborted in front of you, you have a change of heart on abortion, unless you're one of these sterile abortion doctors. And so it, it was really beautiful to see. She came right over. Uh, somebody knocked on my door, said, Abby Johnson is here. That's in the preview. And then um, I walked back, and, and she was just hysterical. She was bawling. She was crying. And I said, did you have a hard day at the office? And, um, and from there, uh, she told me her story, and we helped her. And we, we've helped. You know, Abby was the 26th out of 186 abortion workers who 40 Days for Life has helped. Sean Carney here on The Intersection. The 40 Days for Life website is 440daysforlife.com. The website for the movie Unplanned is unplannedfilm.com. This is The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection podcast. You can also get connected to the Intersection podcast. There's a link through which you can subscribe via iTunes. You can also access the current edition and previous editions of the Intersection podcast through that website address. Also, there are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. Content from the Intersection podcast can also be found in the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by going to faithradio.org. The Intersection podcast is available through a number of apps, including the Faith Radio app. Learn more at meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Author and sports writer Dell Didway joined me recently. He's written for Athletes in Action, Sports Spectrum, and other publications. In our conversation, he shared about the concept of his devotional book, Dugout Devotions, inspirational hits from MLB's best, and discussed some of the athletes whose Christian faith stories he includes in the book. This conversation material includes comments relative to Albert Pujols and Aaron Judge. Here now is Dell Didway. I let him finish up his game. We went over to, to his stall, and we sat down for about 15 minutes. A great conversation. And uh, he told me some really good stories about how he likes to uh, tell, ask um, the, the runner who comes to first base, if he doesn't know him, he'll ask him, what's the most important thing in your life? Because he says, I may never see this guy again. I, I get my chance to talk to him right at that moment, just me and him, for 30 seconds. So he always says, what's the most important thing in life to you? And the player will say, you know, whatever, money, my kids. But he says, you know, Christ is the most important thing to me. And he uses that as his way to witness and plant the seed. So it's a, it's a good story uh, about that. And uh, with, with Aaron Judge, I, I usually don't ask permission to talk to certain players. I just go do it. I just go up and ask you know, I just go up there. But with with the New York media, New York Yankees, and the Mystique, and Aaron Judge was just, you know, uh, he was coming on hot and strong. I sent an email to the uh, media guy with, with the Yankees and said, hey, I'd like to talk to Aaron when he comes to Cleveland. You know, he'll be up there four days. Can I get 10 minutes with him uh, on, on any certain day? And within 10 minutes, no. I got a response, no. And they said, Aaron's a too much demand. I said, okay, I understand that. The guy's doing his job. So I said, you know, I'm going to go up there anyway. So I drove four hours to Cleveland, 
And uh, again, with the anticipation of not getting to talk to Aaron, but I went anyway. So I go in the clubhouse, walk in there, and there's Aaron Judge sitting at a table by himself on the phone. Oh, boy. On his knees, texting. So I just walked up and said, Mr. Judge, I said, you know, I do some writing for Athletes in Action, for Focus on the Family, um, for Sports Spectrum. Do you have do you have a few minutes I'd like to talk to you about your faith and some of your struggles? He goes, well, yeah, sit down. <laughs> yeah, sure, I'd love to talk about that. And then so we talked for 10, 15 minutes, and then he stood up, and I was looking straight up in the air at him. And um, yeah, shook hands with him, which, and we talked for a little bit. And then as I was leaving, a guy in his tie comes up, and he says, hey, you, know, you were talking to Aaron Judge? He said, I said, yeah. He goes, I'm such and such. I said, you're the guy who said no to me. And he laughed. And he goes, hey, I'm just doing my job. I said, I, I get it. No big deal. Nothing, no, nothing's, no, no hard feelings. He goes, I just want to let you know that Aaron doesn't do many one-on-ones. So he, he said, congratulations. That was a good job. Mm. And I said, "Hey, I said, I said, God wanted it to happen." So you know, so I was told no by the Yankees. Was able to get the interview with with Aaron um, at the same time. So it all worked out. What did you learn from talking with Aaron? By the way, I learned talking to Aaron that he's he's very outspoken about it. He doesn't shy away from. It. In fact, on on Aaron's um, on his Twitter feed, he puts on there. You know, he's a Christian first. You know, Christian, his faith is first, his family, then baseball. So, and that's what I learned from a lot of these guys who who have a profession of faith is that you know, they struggle sometimes with identity, especially Aaron. He's like, you know, here I am, I'm this young kid playing for the greatest franchise in baseball history, wearing the pinstripes and the biggest media market. So he says, I have to, I said, he said he doesn't struggle with it, but he said it has to, his family upbringing and his faith keeps him in check that he is just, in fact, Aaron Judge, who just happens to play baseball, so that's what he. So that's the message a lot of these players you know, told me that they don't struggle with it, but it's a it's a daily challenge because they're inundated with fans, with pictures, with requests. They have to step back and say, "Hey, I'm just I'm just plain Aaron Judge, you know, mm-hmm. or I'm just Albert Pujols. I just happen to be in this situation God put me in. Now, how do I use it? With Aaron, he uses his his social media. Uh, to let folks know where he stands. I mean, he he doesn't shove it down your throat, but he lets you know right off the bat, you know, early on in a conversation that he is a Christian. And that's what Clint Hurdle does. He Clint says, you know, if you talk to me long enough, you're going to find out pretty pretty early that I'm a believer. I put my trust in God and, and in Christ. And so he said, I don't. I'm not going to preach at you or yell at you about it. But he said, you're going to know where I stand. So and and that's what a lot of these guys do. Dell Didway here on the intersection. You can learn more through the website Dell Didway. That is spelled D U D U I T dot com. Finally, on this edition of the intersection, it's senior counsel for First Liberty Institute, Roger Byron, discussing the oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case involving a large veterans memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland, which is in the shape of a cross. From that recent conversation, this is Roger Byron. There seemed to be a consensus among the majority of the justices that this memorial is constitutional. Clearly, you can never really tell uh, how the court is going to rule, but the, uh, the comments made and the way the questions were, uh, were given uh, uh, gave that sense. The, uh, it also, uh, the, the questions yesterday also indicated that there was some disagreement or at least some debate among the justices 
about how they were going to get there, how uh, how they were going to utilize the law or develop the law in this area to uh, to, to 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 determine the particular ruling. Um, Justice Gorsuch probably gave the the best analysis and description of this particular area of the law. He compared it to dog's vomit. Um, it's uh, for for many years now the uh, the establishment clause jurisprudence. That's the the case law that uh, that uh, dictates how the courts implement the separation of church and state has been in uh, what most people describe as disarray. Mm. And what uh, we have asked the court to do is to not only find this particular memorial constitutional, we've asked them to fix this area of the law so that it is usable and faithful to the Constitution. Um, currently, the, the, the analysis has essentially devolved over the years so that the lower courts and local and state governments have really no idea if what they're doing is going to be found to comport with the law or not. And we're suggesting that the court take up a test that it's already used in uh, in a, a comparable area, in the area of legislative prayer, and extend it out to uh, passive displays uh, like this Veterans Memorial. Well, let's talk about that. As you mentioned, the the whole area of Establishment Clause jurisprudence, obviously a flawed system here. There has been quite a bit of confusion over the constitutionality of different forms of religious expression. So when we... When First Liberty goes before the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to take another look at that, compare what is being done now in that whole area with what you would like to see occur. A few years ago, uh, the court ruled on a case called uh, Town of Greece versus Galloway. And uh, at, at stake in that case was what is called legislative prayer. You know, it has been a, a, uh, a tradition among many governments, including the federal government and many state governments and a lot of uh, local and, and community government bodies as well, uh, to have an invocation, you know, a prayer before they have their official meetings. Um, that was challenged in, uh, uh, in, in federal court and made its way to, uh, to the U.S. federal court for the, for the second time in the nation's history. And the court upheld legislative prayer. In other words, sectarian legislative prayer. This was prayer, not just a, a generic, uh, generic prayer you hear sometimes, but prayer in the names of particular deities. The court found that was completely, uh, completely constitutional, given our, our national history, and the fact that it wasn't being used to coerce or, or dent to coerce anyone into any type of religious exercise or, or, or to, uh, to join or fund or help any religion, and it wasn't being used to denigrate anyone. And what we're asking is that the court extend that ruling out to not just government speech that happens to be legislative prayer, but government speech that is also a passive displays, like veterans' memorials, that happen to use religious symbols or, or religious images or religious text to, uh, to uh, convey their particular point. Um, we're asking that the court take the Establishment Clause away from what's currently known as the Lemon Test, or the endorsement test, uh, where courts will look at uh, the objective purpose of the government. They'll look at, you know, uh, what would a, regardless of the purpose of the government, what would somebody that looks at a particular display think the government was doing? And uh, is the government somehow entangling itself with religion? 
unfortunately, over the years, uh, those standards have been uh, so confused and, uh, and, and, and in a way watered down and uh, that, that courts really don't know what to do with them. You literally don't know with any given display whether a court will strike it down or hold it up. Roger Byron from First Liberty here on The Intersection. The website address is first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. We are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Website address, again, is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You can get connected to The Intersection Podcast. You can listen to or download the current edition or previous editions of the podcast, and there is a link through which you can subscribe to The Intersection through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through that homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content. You can find out more about accessing The Intersection podcast through a number of apps, including the Faith Radio app. Content from The Meeting House program can also be found in the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.